We are very blessed this evening to have Dr. Vargas with us, and uh, looking forward to this. I've been looking forward to it for quite a while since he said he'd come. I said, wow, that's great. So uh, uh, have your Bibles open, your hearts ready, and we're going to ask the Lord to use this time mightily in our lives. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word and the privilege it is to have it. I just pray, Lord, now. As your Holy Spirit moves within us and works to us and makes us more like Christ, that this will be a, a very significant time as we spend time with you, just as your children sitting at your feet, learning what you would have us to learn. Thank you for Dr. Vargas and for his willingness to come. And I pray that you bless him and use him and challenge us through him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It is good to be here with you. I'm so happy to be here. Um, one of the wonderful blessings of um, having this job is that I get to travel to see uh, churches all over the country and sometimes even farther and just to be able to meet with God's people everywhere. It's a little taste of what it will be like when we get to be with the Lord in heaven, just to see his saints and to worship with you and to just see how God is using you in this part of his vineyard. And so it's a, it's a wonderful blessing to me and for my wife to be able to come and join me to do that. So I'm thankful to be here with you. Well, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. As you're turning there, Nehemiah chapter 8, um, I thought it would be a good thing to begin with the, this first time that I'm with you uh, to look at some basic principles from the Word of God that will help you become um, not a better Bible student in maybe the way that you might be thinking. Um, I know you have a great pastor, and I know that you're taught well, and because of his love for biblical education, his love to teach the Word, that you have a lot of opportunities here to grow and to mature beyond a beginner's Bible study. So I didn't want to bring that kind of a message to you, um, assuming that even if you are not already a student of the Bible, that you can become one, and I'm not going to be able to change that in one message anyways. And so I figured let's be realistic and uh, not teach on Bible study methods so much as um, encouraging you to take advantage of the green pastures that you already have available to you. Now, before I came here, I didn't know that you would literally have green pastures all around you. But as I was able to uh, drive around today and, and even drive in some fields um, to see the pastures that you have all around you. I recognize that this, uh, this metaphor that the Lord uses of sheep, with those little sheep up there before, and shepherds and feeding the flocks and all that is very appropriate, not only because it's biblical, but because of the context that you live and serve in. Um, I'd like you to also know, in case you don't already though, uh, you may be familiar with this, but in case you don't know, um, you are a very blessed church. You are a very blessed church. Uh, I know this church has been here for a long, long time and that it is faithful to teach the Word. But that is not normal. Okay? If you have been to other churches, um, then you probably already know that. If this has been your church for your whole understanding of what Christianity is, you need to know that this, unfortunately, is not the norm. That the Bible is not just opened and then explained and then applied and, you know, just preaching and singing and, and praying the Bible is just not normal anymore in most churches. 
If you have been to other churches, you'd know that. But if you, this is your only experience, then you are a very blessed church. You're a well-fed church. Because there really is a famine in the land for good teaching. And if you've been out in the landscape of the evangelical church, you'll know that there's a lot of shallowness and poor teaching. And sometimes it's just outright heresy. But having those resources um, at hand and taking advantage of them aren't the same thing. Um, you could have uh, a really, really, uh, you know, great uh, restaurants and yet be starving to death because you're just not willing to eat the meals that are being served. So um, I'd like to encourage you to, uh, while you're here in this place, in this church, um, because I know that we live in a society where people sometimes move a lot more frequently than they used to. While you're here, while the Lord would have you here for you to drink deeply and to feed well upon the Word of God by becoming a better Bible student. Now, if you've never um, been a really good student in general, if you've not uh, been a person who studied well, you didn't do very good, maybe you did, but you had to work really, really hard at it, uh, I don't want you to be scared about thinking, well, I can't be a great student at anything, uh, or, or thinking that some people have taught that there's some you know, deep, esoteric way of studying the Bible to find out the secret things that are hidden there, um, like some silly Bible code or something like that. There is none of that. Um, the Apostle John actually says this, and you can keep your place here in Nehemiah, or you can just listen to what I'm going to read from 1 John 2, verses 26 and 27. John wrote this, and uh, he was writing to assure his readers of the fact that we can understand the Bible itself. John wrote, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from Him, from the Spirit, abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. Now, what did John mean by that? Well, in John's day and in John's area where he was ministering, there were false teachers who were saying, you need to have kind of the key, the secret knowledge, the things that are taught um, in, in the dark that you can't know unless we reveal them to you to understand the faith. But John writes to the church and he says to comfort them is that you don't need this secret code. What you just need is the Holy Spirit, which we've all been given. When you have the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, you really have all that you need to understand the Bible. He's not saying you don't need teachers. It sounds like that a little bit, but if you read the rest of it and read it in context with other passages like Ephesians where he tells us that the Spirit has given us apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, he's not saying you don't need teachers at all, but he's saying you don't need teachers that are going to come along and say to you, you can't understand the Bible until I tell you what it means. There's lots of cults and lots of false religions that will tell you that. John, the Word of God, tells us, no, you don't. You can understand the Bible all by yourself. And John isn't just telling it to them. The same is true for us. Doesn't mean that teachers aren't helpful, but ultimately, what we need to study the Bible, we already have. I'm not selling a book, so you don't have to buy it in the back, to tell you how to get this knowledge. You have it. It's in that book that you hold in front of you. It's as uh, Pastor Bob had said earlier, it's this precious word of God by which he nourishes and cherishes his church. So I want to look at four lessons in this time that we have tonight, um, four lessons that will help us to become a better student of the Bible. But before we do that, I want to kind of review um, what 
this passage is saying, because we're not going to start at verse 1, we're going to pick up at verse 13. But let me review with you what the first 12 verses, and even the much broader context of Nehemiah, is saying. So to understand the passage we're going to come to, you need to know that um, Nehemiah uh, has has seen the need for the Word of God to be taught. The, the law of the Lord had been neglected for many, many years. And they didn't even have it. it. It had to be recovered. And once it was recovered, the people are so hungry. They're in a time when there is also a famine in the land for the Word of God. And they're so hungry to hear the Word of God that they come to Ezra the scribe and they ask him to read it to them. So in chapter 8, you'll find that for the whole day, which we figure is about six hours, Ezra reads from the law of the Lord and the people stand as they listen. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute because we get to go to churches and this church has nice, comfortable, cushy um, pews that you sit in. If you've ever been to one of those churches where it's just the old-fashioned, straight-back wooden pews and you complain about that, well, think about the pastor going for six hours and you're not even getting to sit in one of those hard back wooden pews. You've got to stand. And that's exactly what was happening. Is Ezra's reading from the law, and there are elders that are within the church, within Israel, excuse me, and they're walking around, and partly linguistically, because they'd lost part of their language, and partly to help explain the meeting, they're walking through and making sure everybody understands what the Word of God says. Now, as they hear this reading, they come to the conclusion that they have been extremely disobedient. They don't say, well, we've never heard this. It's not our fault. No, they begin to mourn over the fact that they had been disobedient as a people from the Word of God for many, many years. Clearly, what they understood was that God was angry. And God is angry, and they begin to despair. Ezra and the elders encourage the hearts of the people in those first 12 verses and they call for a time of fasting to rejoice in the fact that the Word of God is once again being read and being understood and it's at the center of the lives of God's people. But now that God's Word has been read and now that God's Word has been understood in this public gathering, what more must be done? And that's really where we're going to pick up. For this next section, we're going to have four lessons that I'm confident will encourage us to dig deeper into our Bibles. So, let's, uh, let's uh, look at these four lessons uh, to encourage us to do that. Here's the first lesson. It, it picks up in verse 13. We're not going to read um, ahead of time. We're just going to read them as we come up. So, look at verse 13 with me. And here's the lesson for us, is that personal Bible study, serious personal Bible study, has to move beyond our corporate worship. All right? It has to move beyond our corporate worship. Verse 13, it says, On the second day, now I already told you what happened on the first day, standing, reading, listening, mourning over what they're understanding. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. So here's where we see the first understanding, this first lesson that we learn from what was going on in Israel at the time, is that if we're going to improve, get better at personal Bible study, if we're going to de dig deeper in our Bibles, 
then our study of the scriptures has to move beyond what happens here on Sundays or on Wednesdays or whenever we have our gatherings together as a church. Now, it can be assumed, if we jump down to verse 15, where they proclaim to the surrounding towns, this is what it says down in verse 15, it says, um, and that they should proclaim it, uh, what they've studied, and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Um, And what they're talking about is gathering up what they need to put into practice what they've just read, which is they have not been obeying God's word in his command to practice a specific feast here, the Feast of Booths. So they have to uh, gather all these branches to build these little huts that they're going to celebrate this uh, feast in to remember their uh, wandering in the wilderness. And so we can understand from verse 15 that most of the people had returned to their homes. The first day they all gathered together to hear the word taught, but now that they are going to obey it, these leaders gather together and then they're going to put to practice what they've just read about the Feast of Booths. So to do that, they send the word out, which if everybody was already there, they wouldn't have had to do it. Everybody's re Distributed. They've all gone back home. They've all gone back home because they're, they're, they've got lives to live. They've got uh, animals to feed. They've got uh, things to do. They've got chores at home. And so they can't just stay and have Bible study every day. And so we understand that they've all gone back home. And after they heard the reading, after they've mourned over the fact that they've been in disobedience to the Word of God for many years, they understand that God is angry with them. They hear this word for six hours on that previous day. Many of them would be satisfied. They said, I mean, you would be satisfied if you were here in church and Pastor Bob read for six hours out of the Bible. You'd go, we don't need church for, well, I don't know, at least a month. Right? Let's go home. We have missed several meals, right? Because meals, this isn't a Baptist church. I attend a Baptist church. And meals are important to Baptist people. Uh, because, you know, it's part, of, it's part of being a Christian. Potlucks are part of being a Christian, I think. But, you know, that's what happens. Is we hear the Word of God, we feast on the Word of God, we've had a spiritual meal, and we're like, we're satisfied, at least for a little while. But I want you to notice again what we just read in that verse, verse 13. On the second day, after six hours of teaching the day before, on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, They come together to Ezra the scribe in order to do what? To study. A six-hour feast the day before was not enough for those that had gathered in the group before. Matthew Henry um, tells us that this attitude that they had. Now, notice who it is. It's the heads of the fathers' houses. It's the priests. And it's the Levites, and they come together to study the Word of God. What is this attitude? Henry tells us, the more we converse with the Word of God, if we rightly understand it and be affected with it, the more we shall covet to converse with it and to increase in our acquaintance with it, saying, how sweet are thy words unto my mouth. See, those that understand the Scriptures well will be still be desirous to understand them better. End quote. Matthew Henry understands it's a good thing. It's such a good thing that, yes, we had it for six hours yesterday, but can we have some more? Can we have some more? Now, 
if you if you came to know Christ like many people do in um kind of a dramatic way, you were so lost and you, you were looking for the answer, and then somebody tells you about Christ, and you've lived a life that you are quite ashamed of. And you come to Christ and then you went to your pastor, you went to your friend, you went to your, your parents who shared with you about this God who sent His Son to die for a wretched sinner like we were. And you couldn't believe this message and then you received Christ and then you said, what do I do next? And they handed you a Bible and they said, read this. Maybe they said, start with the Gospel of John. Maybe they said, start in Matthew. Maybe they didn't tell you where to start and you started in Genesis 1. But I've had the experience of people that have come to know Christ that are so excited about Christ that they come back to you a few days later and they said, so what did you think about John? Well, John was great. You know who I love though? Matthew. Well, that's great. You read John and Matthew? Oh, I read it all. All of Matthew? No, I read the Bible. You got saved two days ago. I know, I haven't slept. I haven't slept. Because they're just so in love with the God of the Word that they just couldn't get enough. And you'll remember that, that when you go back to those early days of your faith, that you were ravenous to have more of God. These people have been starved. And now we see the heads of the houses, the fathers, and then those that are leaders in the, in the community are all coming together on day two after six hours of feasting, to say, we need more. Again, Henry said, how sweet are thy words unto my mouth. Our churches strive to teach us the meat of God's Word. And as they do that, those doctrines enrich our soul. They feed our souls. But you know what? We don't just eat three times a week a physical meal. So even if we came Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, it's not enough. It's not enough to nourish our soul. We don't do that with our physical body. And our physical body is temporary. It's wasting away. It's a tent that is wearing out and soon will be shed. And this mortal will put on immortality. But the eternal soul that God has given us needs to be fed as well. Pastor Bob mentioned loving the law from Psalm 119. Psalm 19, excuse me. Psalm 119 as well. Um, and you know, the you, you think about the Pentateuch, the first five books, the book, books written by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If you think about the fact is that when Jesus met the devil in the wilderness, the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness, and there, after fasting from physical food, for 40 days and 40 nights, then the devil came to tempt him. And we know this accounts. I don't know if you realize this though, but when the devil comes and meets him and begins to tempt him, Jesus drives him away by teaching, by speaking the Word of God. I don't know if you've ever looked up where all of those passage are, passages are, but they're from the book of Deuteronomy. Now, I don't know about you, but if the devil showed up on my front door and started to provoke me, could you defend yourself against the devil from your knowledge of the book of Deuteronomy? I think we'd all be toast. But Jesus loved God's Word. He had consumed it. He'd meditated on it. He'd memorized it. 
Remember what one of the things that Jesus said in that confrontation with the devil in Deuteronomy in Matthew four four he he quotes Deuteronomy uh, eight three and he says man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We shall not live by brisket alone. Shall not live by pulled pork alone, although those are good. We need to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. If you were to go to the context of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, God is reminding in that passage, He's reminding the Israelites that He allowed them to be humbled and to be hungry in order that they would know that life is not sustained by food, but life is sustained by by God's Word. The manna came because God spoke. The quail came because God spoke. The water came because God spoke. Their sandals did not wear out because God spoke. Their clothing did not wear out because God spoke. Their enemies did not capture them because God spoke. And He wanted the people to get that. It's the only reason you lived for 40 years in the wilderness is because I spoke. Man does not live by God's words or by, by bread alone. It's by God's words that he lives. You can't sustain a vibrant and healthy spiritual life by limping along from sermon to sermon without your own serious Bible study for the feeding of your soul. Can I give you a, a helpful tip to put into practice right away? A few of them here. If you're not already doing these, here, here's what they are. First of all, if, if, when you study your Bible, and, and I mean when, even when you're just maybe your daily reading of the Bible, when you read it, do it with a pen or pencil in your hand and have some paper available. Write down some observations. Because I think sometimes when we're going through maybe the little reading in the daily bread or maybe we've got a Bible reading plan we follow, we read, but we just read. It's, it's almost like the, the water that runs off of a duck's back or the rain that falls on top of hardened soil. It just washes by and it doesn't have enough time to penetrate in and affect what it needs to below the surface. So having a pen or a pencil in hand and something to write, it's helpful. And then to ask yourself some questions, to, to make some observations. So let me give you a few things to look out for. Look out for things that you don't understand and need to dig up the answers. Are there any of those there? You know, when you're reading through uh, the book of Ruth and uh, Boaz takes off his sandal, I'm telling you, if some Bedouin farmer took his sandal off and wanted to hand it to me, I would not want to take it. What, what does it mean when, when Ruth kind of cuddles up next to him and says, throw your Throw your cloak over me. What, is, what does that mean? Um, there's all kinds of things that we really don't understand because we live in a whole different culture, a whole different time. And sometimes the New Testament is more familiar to us, so we think, oh, I understand that, but I don't read the Old Testament because there's all kinds of weird stuff. When you think about it, you're 2,000 years removed from the New Testament. It's newer. It's not new. And it is still very, very different. You know, when Jesus talks about a father and how God the Father loves like an earthly father does, our heavenly father, and he talks about giving an egg versus giving a rock and a scorpion and a fish, you're like, 
I don't get the scorpion fish one. Rock, yeah, maybe a big white rock would look like an egg, but I don't understand the scorpion fish thing. Well, they had a fish that kind of looked like a scorpion. That's why you would take it, because it kind of looked like what you're familiar with. Or Jesus talks about the sparrows being worth two cents. I used to think, what did they have, like a marketplace with these little Chinese cages with a little sparrow in there, and they only charge two cents? It doesn't make sense until I looked it up. It was a little horrifying. I'm looking around. Do we have any little ones in here? All right. So, so what I found out was that they used to take those little sparrows and they used to skewer them and cook them as a little street snack. And they were two cents for these little skewered bites. I thought, that's horrible. But they would have understood that. You're more valuable than the snack that was made from a little sparrow that was flying around in the trees. So if you make observations of things you don't understand, and then you go look them up when you have time, you will grow in your understanding of the Word of God. Also, while you're writing things down, write down something like this. Ask yourself, are there any promises given to God's people? Now, you need to be wise. They sell these little booklets in Christian bookstores that say God's promises, and oftentimes they're filled with all kinds of bad stuff because they're God's promises to Israel, and we're not Israel. But read and understand, because sometimes they are general principles, even to Israel, that are true because our God's character is always true. He is always faithful. So although he makes a promise in certain places to Israel, you understand that that's because of his character, and his character is still that same way. And so we understand that you know, when uh, Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh, and he's all upset because God's a merciful God, I knew you'd save them, God. That's why I didn't want to go. That's still our God. That's still our God. He is a merciful God. And, uh, you know, you might have some friends, some maybe not friends, some enemies, some, some co-workers, somebody that you've got to deal with, and they're, they're kind of like Ninevites. They're, they're, they're pretty rough and tumble people. They're angry. They're hateful. What do I do? Well, I guess I've got to tell them about Christ because God loves them too. I don't want to. Well, think about Jonah. Think about Jonah. God is merciful and He may just save them. And we need to take them the gospel and not be like Jonah and run away from them. Write down, are there any promises given to God's people? Make sure you're careful there that you're not applying something that is not a promise. Um, poetry, uh, Proverbs, not promises, but they are, they're clearly wisdom from God. Third, are, are there any warnings that I need to listen to? Are there any warnings? And sometimes they're just outright warnings. At other times, there are warnings in the, in the sense of a principle. There are warnings to us. And it says, you know, you've got to be careful because um, this could happen to you as well. I, I love the fact that the Bible doesn't always make, uh, doesn't ever make any, anybody in it look better than they actually are. Uh, these are not those, um, those biographies where they have just kind of, t- they, they've taken all the warts away from the person. Now, the Bible tells us David was a man after God's own heart, and he was also a horrible person at times. And so those are warnings. Those are warnings. If you read passages, David standing up on the roof looking down at Bathsheba, there is a whole host of warnings there that he just blew right past. David's own son, Rehoboam, after him came Solomon, and then after him came Rehoboam. There's some lessons there because Rehoboam goes and splits the kingdom because he didn't listen. That's wisdom for us. Don't be a Rehoboam, especially for young people. Don't be a Rehoboam. And so think about it. Are there any warnings that I need to listen to? 
Another one to ask ourselves, is there any sin that I need to confess? Or maybe that I need to avoid? If you're reading your Bible, you're going to find out. Yeah, well, what David did was dumb. You mean All the kings were out to war. Maybe I shouldn't be just flipping through the TV cable channels. Or maybe I shouldn't be just clicking my mouse and snapping it on whatever looks interesting to me because I'm going to get myself in trouble. Maybe I need to go out and do something productive. That's why they have that saying. The idle hands or what? The devil's playground. There's some lessons for us. Maybe there's sin as you read it. And you go, Lord, that's me. That's me. I almost feel God's finger pointed at me like Nathan the prophet to David. You're the man. And as you're reading it, don't ignore it. Let the mirror that's being held up to your soul have its full effect. Is there any word of encouragement you need to listen to? You remember what it tells us in in the Psalms. David is despairing. And I love the Psalms for that because they're brutally honest. And he says to himself, to his own soul, Oh my soul, why are you downcast? And he answers his own soul with the truth of the Word of God. Hope in God. So you may be reading and you're like, going to encourage me. You know what? I'm so discouraged. David didn't get that from himself. He already had in himself all this discouragement. He was already downcast. And sometimes this world is just, it beats us. It crushes us. It spits us out. You need an answer. Hope in God. Go to His Word. Find His answer there. Is there any word of encouragement? Finally, is, is there something I should be praying for or praying about? As you're reading the Bible, you might see, well, there is some... There's something I need to be in prayer about. Maybe someone else, maybe for myself, maybe for my family, maybe for our church. You need to be praying about that. And the Word of God will start that that idea in your head as you're thinking about it. These are just a few observations you might come across. And that will broaden your study. It will give you purpose as you're reading your Bible. And you don't need anything fancy. A piece of paper and a pencil other than your Bible. So, that's maybe the, the first lesson for us. It is, you know, these guys get gathered together and it wasn't just church. And we, I understand there's a distinction between Israel and church, but it wasn't just this corporate gathering. These came together again to study the Word further. You need to do that for yourself. Here's a second lesson for us. is personal study of Scriptures has to be modeled by fathers as well as being done for the benefit of others. Again, in verse 13, notice it is the heads of fathers' houses along with the other spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel. Now, I'm going to broaden this in a second, but I want you to understand that God has ordained that fathers are to lead their families in all matters, physical as well as spiritual. Now, that is not a popular stand to take today in this world that we live in, even even here in Hillsdale, Oklahoma. But it is true. This is the way that God has designed and ordained it. It is very far from the abusive ideas that people want to say that is. But at the same time, we understand this is the way God has ordained things. And it should be no surprise as you read verse 13 that the heads of the fathers' houses chose to attend this in-depth Bible study 
that was being put on by Ezra. Now, I think that they would have individually um, been a benefit, uh, uh, beneficiaries of this Bible study themselves as a personal uh, blessing to them. But I think that's a very Western mindset that they went there for themselves. Because I think they had a very much a corporate idea of we are leaders of our family. They thought generationally. They didn't just think for themselves. And I, I think that maybe the bigger idea that they would have gone to this is that the purpose of their being there in that study was they were the spiritual heads. They were responsible for passing on what they had learned to their families. Now, I know it's also very popular in the Western and Evangelical Church at large that once a child, you know, pick an age, depends on what state you're in, I suppose, when you reach a certain age of accountability, and I challenge you to find that in the Bible, when you re- once they reach that, kind of whatever they do is, is not my problem. I wish that was the case, because that would save us a lot of sleepless nights as parents. But what you see in the Bible is something, I think, very different. I think that when you find that um, Abraham is there, he is head over his whole clan, his whole family, he's watching over them. Not that he's making micromanaging everything, but he's watching over them. When you read about what... Um, Job does. You remember what Job did when he had his children before they were taken away from him? What he did because they would all take turns going to their brother's houses on their day of feasting? It said that he offered sacrifices on behalf of his children in case some of them sinned against God. He took the responsibility for his family and was still continuing on as a spiritual leader in the home. Uh, I think you find that in other places as well in Scripture. So I, I don't think we should throw that off too fast. Like, well, if they move out of the house, I'm not responsible. I think that there are levels of responsibility. And I think minimally, we should continue to pray and we should continue to try to influence our children, even as adults. And I think that's what you see here as well. These men took seriously the commands that we see in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. Where it tells, it says, you know, Hear, O Israel, Lord is God, the Lord is one. And then it goes on to say, wherever you're at, inside, outside, out in the field, lying in bed, wherever you find yourself, use those strategic opportunities to teach to your family, to your children, the Word of God. They took that seriously. But you can't teach what you're ignorant of. You can't teach what you yourself don't know. Notice that although the priests and the Levites are present there with, is, uh, with Ezra as well, it wasn't like these men said, well, we got Ezra, you know, he's the scribe, Nehemiah is the governor, we got the Levites, we got the priests, all the big time, you know, Bible study people, the religious leaders are all here. We don't need to be here. They'll tell us what we need to do. No, notice that. They don't relinquish their responsibilities. They don't say, uh, somebody else will take care of it. Let the youth pastor take care of my teenager. He'll take care of it. He'll figure it out. No, the fathers are there. And, and dads, you need to realize that you're the spiritual leader of your family. And that doesn't matter whether you want the role or not. That's your job. That's your job. 1 Corinthians 14.35 says, If there's anything they desire to learn that's wives, let them ask their husbands at home. And I think all too often feminism has invaded the church because the men in the church have been passive. And they've said, it's not my, it's not my job. And I know in some circles, 
there are far more women than there are in men. Look at any dying church. There are far more women than there are men. And some churches have become so desperate. They've said, we've got nobody that wants to be the leader. And some lady steps up and says, well, I'll teach it. And they said, well, there's nobody else. I thank God for the Deborahs that step into a gap. But the fact is that that's not legitimate when the men are not doing their job. Guys, we don't have to have all the answers. But you do need to know where to go to find them. And you need to dig for yourselves. And although that is true for fathers, it's true for all of us as Christians. Men and women, husbands and wives, children. The world needs us to bring the truth to them. So if you're not a father, that doesn't matter. Because you see, the, the Bible study is more than for us. The world needs us to bring the truth. Your family, your friends, those who you care about, they have questions. And we need to be prepared to have the answers that they need. I mean, how can we help them if they're ignorant of the Word? How can we help them when they come to us and say, I've got this problem. Don't you go to church? Yeah, I go to church. Well, what would you say if this happened? My, my daughter just came back from college and just told me that she's gay. What would you say as a Christian? Oh, 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 oh. See, we can't do that. They're coming to us for help. They're coming to us. They say, pray for me. But you say, I will pray for you. But can I share with you what God's Word already says on this thing? I want to tell you what God already says about this matter. You say you're going to leave your husband. Before you do that, can we sit down, have some coffee, and can I show you what God says? But sometimes we don't know enough to do that. And so we just helplessly watch and, and pray but we don't give answers. You know, this picture I, I put for us because it's a picture of me and we're at, I think we're at the Shepherds Conference. We are at the Shepherds Conference. These are two of my friends that are, um, this, this uh, man here with the red shirt, his name is John Shim. He's a pastor out in Berkeley, California. Probably the wickedest place on, on I don't know, on the planet, but Afghanistan's pretty bad right now, but I'm in, at least in the country. Because of Cal Berkeley, all, all the, the liberalism that comes into our country, uh, it's probably passed through Cal Berkeley at some time. And he's got an IFCA Bible Church, uh, Evangel Bible Church, right there. And they, they actually have Bible studies on campus. They do evangelism on campus. And most of his church is young people that came to Christ while they were there getting radicalized. Um, their parents often aren't happy either. They come and charge into Pastor John's office all the time. So you took my little girl who was going to be a you know, career woman and now she wants to be a wife and a, she wants to raise kids and goes to church and what have you done? You've ruined our dreams. So that's Pastor John. And this over here is a, is a brother who is an elder at his church. John Michael Wong is an elder. He's a computer guy. Berkeley is right there in Silicon Valley and uh, they get all kinds of computer people. They're, they're, they're just blessed with a massive amount of really, really sharp students. And he came out of that school. He got saved. He came out of that school. And he's, he's gotten a little older. And he's got a family. And he's uh, something in the tech industry. I don't know exactly what he is. But the reason that I wanted to show you this picture is because this guy trained for the ministry. He's the pastor. 
this guy works in the tech industry. And my wife and I went down to visit them at their church one, one year, and um, <clears throat> John Michael handed me and my wife a, a, a little book. And I said, thank you, thank you. And looked at it, it was a little commentary on the book of Acts. And, and that was it. We thought, oh, he, they must have had this for a Bible study or something, maybe had some extras or whatever. We didn't know why he handed it to us. Just, he didn't say anything, he just handed it to us, and then I think he walked away or something. A little later, I looked at the book and recognized that the author was John Michael Long. It was him. He was the author of a commentary on the book of Acts. He's a tech guy. He didn't go to seminary. He didn't go to Bible college. He came out of UC Berkeley. But he's helping lead the people of God there at Evangel Bible Church of Berkeley. And he studies the Word. And then he put it into a book that was published by Day One Publishers, a legitimate publishing company. He, he had it published because it was that good, because he'd studied the Word that well, so that the church at large, not just this little church in Berkeley, which isn't a little church, but this church in Berkeley, he published it so not so that he could make a name for himself, but so that the church at large could have help to study the Word of God. Because people have, they have questions and he wants to help give them answers. Parents, we need to teach our family from the Word of God. You can't relinquish your, your job. It can't be relinquished over to your wife, fathers. It can't be relinquished to Sunday school teachers. They have a part. Wives have a part. Sunday school teachers and youth ministers have, have a part of helping to raise up our young people. But primarily, it's your job. It's your responsibility. Every family should invest in some sort of tools for everyone in the family to use. Min minimally, you should have a copy of a good study Bible. If you can't get one for every kid that you've got or everybody in the family, then have one for the family to use that everybody can reference. And if you can afford more than that, there's a little pocket handbook called Haley's Bible Handbook. It's affordable. There's also a two-volume commentary called the Bible Knowledge Commentary produced by professors out of Dallas Theological Seminary. It's about 75 bucks on Amazon.com. One set to the Old Testament, the other book is the New Testament. When um, my family started getting, the kids got old enough um, for them to start studying the Bible more in depth on their own, I took them into my study at home, I pointed out those two books, and I said, these two commentaries are very reliable. If you don't understand what the Bible says, go look it up. Now, you don't have to do this, but what we ended up doing is um, I told my daughters, you know, I want to make sure that when you leave this home, you can study the Word for yourself and teach others. So when we do family devotion time, we rotate. And they can pick whatever passage that they're, they're all doing different Bible reading plans, whatever passage they want. They teach something to the whole family from that passage, which means they got to not only understand it, but they have to find something to apply out of it. And sometimes they're a little off, and so I help fix it with them while we're there. But we're all studying the Bible, and they're able to teach it. It didn't happen overnight, but we want to take them there so that I know that whenever the Lord brings some man into their life that steals my little girls away and they have children, that my grandchildren will be able to hear the Word of God taught at least by their mothers. And if I have anything to do with it, their fathers too. But I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. These boys coming around all the time. The third lesson for us, personal study has to span the full counsel of God. 
Look at verses 14 through 17. So we talked about them all gathering together. It says, and they found, in verse 14, and they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So there's the quote from the section that they were reading. Verse 40, uh, 16. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, that's Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So from verse 17, we get the picture that the Israelites had failed to keep the feast um, since Joshua's time. I want you to think about that. Since Joshua's time, all the way through the times of the judges, then the first king, the monarchy, and all the way through all the other kings, then the deportation to Babylon, and then through their exile. Then they've come back. All that time, they had not kept the word. They've not obeyed the law. That's a huge amount of time. Now, if you think through your understanding of the Old Testament during this period, there are numerous times that it shows that they did do things, certain things, during that time. So we wonder, well, how is it that it says that? Well, what appears to be going on is that the people hadn't properly kept the Feast of Booths in all of the aspects that they needed to obey. Everything that God had commanded was not being obeyed. Maybe pieces of it at times, but not all of it. This feast of booths um, had basically two parts. There was the festival of the ingathering of the harvest. You guys get that. There's a farming community. They had a party after they had this, um, this harvesting. And that was probably, since the harvest always reminded them, we need to do this, at least while they were in the land. They probably regularly kept that. That's from Exodus 34. But we find in the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus 23, verses 39 to 43, that the second part was the memorial of the wilderness wanderings. And that is the part that they most likely had forgotten since the time of Joshua. They only kept part of it. And we've got to remember faithfulness is a great deal to our God. You even put it on your wall here. It's a great deal to our God. You know, sometimes there'll be a, a couple that stands in front to be married. And when they covenant together in marriage, we expect them to be faithful to one another, don't we? How faithful? Well, let's put it in a percentage. How faithful do you want your spouse, those of you that are married? Well, like 75% of the time? No. Well, 85% of the time. 95% of the time? You guys are picky, man. You're sticklers. 99% of the time. No, nobody wants a marriage like that. We want complete and total faithfulness. 
But sometimes we think of God's Word that way. It's like, yeah, we can fudge a little bit on the numbers. But that's not the way they were looking at it. As they were looking at it, they're like, we haven't kept it all. We haven't obeyed what God says. And in their study with Ezra, or maybe Ezra even pointed it out, they started to see the scattered regulations regarding this forgotten festival. Let me tell you what they are. In Leviticus 23:40 and following, it instructs the Israelites to gather branches to make booths to live in. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 13 through 15, that coincides with what they say in, in Nehemiah 8:15. They need to rejoice in the festival. In Deuteronomy 31, verses 10 to 13, it taught that they needed to read the law. In Numbers 29, 35, it taught them that they needed to gather for a solemn assembly on the eighth day. Did you catch that? Leviticus 23, Deuteronomy 16, Deuteronomy 31, Numbers 29. I'm bringing that all up because that helps us to understand the fact that we need to know the whole counsel of God. That takes time. The people had grown from simply reading to obeying. They they started to see it. It's a guide for living. But to know how you're supposed to live, the Scripture needs to be searched. It needs to be consumed. It needs, needs to be understood. And we can't hope to live biblically if we only read portions, if we only study the Psalms or read the Psalms, I know some Christians that that's all they know. Or John 3.16. If you're a John 3.16 Christian, then you're very anemic. Is John 3.16 a precious scripture? Absolutely. Is there more to the whole story than John 3.16? Absolutely. We need it all. We have to study the whole counsel of God. If we're going to be equipped to think biblically and then live in the light of all that God teaches. Had those leaders only read from Leviticus 23, they would have made booths, but they would not have been joyful. They may have failed to gather into a solemn assembly on the eighth day. And they may have failed to read the law each day. And for us, in order to to follow God, you need to search the whole Bible. You need to know what God thinks so we can conform our thinking to God's thinking. I mean, we all have things we like to study in the Bible. Some people prefer the, the red letter sections of the New Testament. That's unhealthy. It's like I only read the red letters. But Jesus didn't just read the red letters. Maybe we shouldn't do that ourselves. Some people get fascinated with uh, studying the end times and all the strange things they find in the books of Daniel and Revelation and in Ezekiel and places like that. Some people get really fixated on certain things in theology. When I taught at the seminary, I I knew there was always going to be some some seminarian was going to find his favorite doctrine in some passage it wasn't taught. Because everything he taught was about that doctrine in whatever passage he was in. And that's not healthy. Not that the doctrine isn't good. Not that the red letters of Jesus' words aren't good. Not that Revelation and Ezekiel aren't good. These are all good things. 
But our hobby horse theology, if we're not careful, will yield a very lopsided understanding of the faith. We won't be healthy in our biblical understanding. That's the reason why I, and that's also why Pastor Bob, we, we are very, very committed to verse-by-verse verse exposition through the Scriptures. Because although it can be done right and well, topical preaching tends to produce lopsided Christians. Because the man who's preaching it is not perfect. But the Word of God is. It's perfectly balanced. And then you can't get mad at us when we preach on something you don't like. Because it's just the next verse. You can see this in, uh, in a great example. Uh, Steve Jobs, the, um, the found, one of the founders of uh, Apple Computer, in, um, in the biography written by Walter Isaacson, uh, Isaacson writes that he was an odd man. And he was a very smart man, but very strange. He got in all kinds of weird stuff uh, involving false religions. But as he was trying to figure stuff out for himself, it, it reflected itself in his diet. Steve Jobs started um, fiddling around because he, he went to India and he got involved in all kinds of stuff there. First, he was a pescatarian. He, he would not eat meat. Uh, he would only eat fish and vegetables. Pescatarian. And then he said, no, no, I'm going to be a vegetarian. I'm going to cut out even fish. So he became a vegetarian. But then he said, oh, that's not enough. I need to... Vegetarians allow for things like dairy. So he'd eat cheese and, and milk products. But he said, no, no, I'm going to become a vegan, which is only vegetation, only vegetable stuff. Vegetarian. So pescatarian, vegetarian, vegan. Then he became something maybe many of you have never heard of as a fruitarian. You'll figure that out. Only fruit. And if that was where he stopped, we'd all think, what a weirdo. But that's not where he stopped. Because he became a, a very specific kind of fruitarian. I don't know where he came up with this, but he only started to eat certain colored fruit. Like all purple fruits or all yellow fruits or whatever. When Steve Jobs uh, came down with pancreatic cancer, he tried a lot of, he was, he was a hippie at heart, he tried a whole bunch of um, you know, non-medical procedures to try to overcome this cancer in his body. One of the things he confessed to is, I think that that period in my life, because he didn't stick to that his whole life, that period in my life made my health so poor that it made it very hard for me to physically recover that I could fight off this, cancer in my body. Now, I've known people that have not gone to that extreme and have died of pancreatic cancer anyways. But he felt so strongly that he, what he did was dumb even in his own later years. Why do I bring that up? Because that's the way some of us are in our Bible study. Only read New Testament. Only study New Testament. Old Testament's weird. I don't understand it. Sounds like a different God. That, that's a heresy, by the way. Marcionism. You know, Old Testament is a different God. No, it's not. It's if you, if you don't like the God of Old Testament, you don't, aren't going to like Revelation. That God in, in, in Revelation is pretty angry too. Uh, or we only like certain theologies or certain doctrines or certain things. We need to be omnivores in our consumption of the book. Eat it all. The T-bone steak parts and the Brussels sprouts parts. The lima bean parts and the smoked brisket parts. We need a healthy diet 
for our spiritual lives to function well. You know, as you study every book, it seems, for me at least personally, becomes increasingly interesting. Even though not every book starts that way in my mind. And if you stay away from digging deep into certain books of the Bible, you really are cheating yourself of some great treasures. Read it all. Study it all. Wear out every part of your Bible. Now, you may wear out Jude faster than other parts of your Bible. But that's okay. Just make sure that the other parts of your Bible are not brand new and sticking together because you've never even cracked open the book of Nahum. All right? Last lesson for us tonight. Personal study must include personal obedience. Serious personal study of the Bible has to include personal obedience. We read the scripture there. You notice beginning in verse 16 is they go out and start doing what they've already come to understand. After hearing the word taught for six hours, studying it in more detail on the second day, they start to realize what we've been, they've been failing to do. The Feast of Booth begins on the 15th day of the seventh month. Okay, I'm telling you that because it was on the second day of the seventh month that they realized it. That means they got 13 days to prepare for all the returnees to come back to Jerusalem to obey God's command in these matters. So they have to move in action quick. Got less than two weeks. And in obeying the law, the people gather up branches. They make for themselves. Notice that in verse 16. They make for themselves booths. That means the fathers, the household leaders, the priests, the Levites, all of them took the message and they made it clear to those in the responsibility. These are the implications of the Word of God. See, intellectual understanding is necessary. It's the first step. You have to understand what the Bible says. You can't obey what you don't understand. But that's not far enough. Knowing in the head is only the beginning. And it's actually wicked when it only goes that far. Remember what it says in James 2.19? James wrote, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. James is saying that, that cardinal doctrine of the unity of God is crucial for understanding the nature of God. The Trinity is a monotheistic understanding of God. There's only one God. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 6. But if that's as far as we go, even the demons believe in one God. The demons are not polytheists. They're monotheists. They respond even with emotion. That's not enough. They get all worked up in church. This church isn't like that, but there are lots of churches where you go to get your spiritual high, it wears off by the next week, you've got to come back and get reloaded. But that's not enough. It's not enough to get all worked up with emotion. The demons believe. They shudder. They tremble with fear of this awesome God. But knowledge and emotion fall short of what God requires of His children. As a matter of fact, those who love Him obey Him. It's interesting to see that the Feast of Booths was meant to remind the people of something. To remind them of their first exodus out of Egypt. 
And it's appropriate because it was meant to make them thankful for their second exodus. This time, not Egypt, but out of Babylon. God had brought them out of Babylon. Look at what it says in verse 17 there. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity. That's a reminder to the reader. Captivity. What does that make me think of? We were held captive in Egypt. And it goes back to mention Joshua, the son of Nun. Joshua. The one that led them into the promised land. And as was the case for Israel, it's the same for us in this sense. Israel was taught and spoken to as a nation corporately. God deals with them. He gives them the law. He gives them all of these regulations and all of these festivals and feasts and all these things. And we too are spoken in this church, in the church of Jesus Christ. We are spoken to corporately through the Word of God. He speaks to all of us. The Word is not a personal, private message to you. You're not Corinthians. You're not Israelites. You're not the church in Jerusalem. But at the same time, as God speaks to the whole church, in Israel, individuals were responsible. And so are we. You remember back in the Exodus, the individual families were responsible to take the lamb, to have it slaughtered, to take the blood that was collected, and to use that hyssop to put it over the lintels and on the doorpost of their homes. And if they disobeyed, it affected them personally. When Israel was about to enter into the promised land, they sent in 12 spies to check it out. But when they reported back, 10 of the spies were filled with fear and God punished them by not allowing the whole generation to go into the promised land. But there was an exception, wasn't there? There was two spies that said, we can take it. God will help us. There was Caleb and Joshua. They had faith in God. And they, as a result, individually were allowed into the promised land because they believed God. And in our passage here in Nehemiah, the whole nation is commanded, keep this feast. But the individual families had to build their own tabernacles. Brothers and sisters, we too are held responsible for obeying God's Word for ourselves. Even though the whole church is being addressed. It's, it's here where we find our motivation to study the Word for ourselves. We can find ourselves united all together, the whole church in its mission. We can lump ourselves in. It's like, this is where Hillsdale Bible Church is going. And that's great. But the reality is, we must each obey. It's not enough for us just to move along in a big, giant group. The group is made up of lots of individual brothers and sisters in Christ. And we must all obey the Lord. And by studying the Word carefully, we will be fed spiritually. But we have to go farther in our walk. We have to make every effort to put into practice what His Word says. And to do that, we have to depend upon the strength and this power of the Spirit working within us. 
And that's what leads us into what I'll talk about tomorrow. So you can't do it yourself. We need God. Let me review our, our four lessons. I don't know if this slide is there. Nope, it's not. Here they are. We need to move beyond corporate worship as our only, our, our only time of studying our Bible. It should not just be Sundays. And I know you're here on a, on a Saturday. So you're like, we're doing it. All right, stop pushing us. <clears throat> but you should be digging in the Word as often as you can. Because it's not just you. The second lesson we learn is we need to model personal Bible study as an aid, as an example to our family and others around us who need biblical answers and counsel. Because they're going to come to you. If you're a city on a hill that is so bright that everybody around you can see, you're going to draw people to you who see Christ. And they're going to say, give me the answers. And we need to be ready to give it to them. The third lesson we learn is that we need to study the whole Bible and not just our favorite parts. You don't want to give bad counsel from one part of the Bible that you just misunderstood because if you look at five other places, it's saying something different. Scripture is accurate. Scripture interprets Scripture. But if you don't understand it, then you might lead somebody astray. All right. So you need to make sure you understand the whole of Scripture. And that takes time. I understand that. But there's no good time to start than today. And then fourthly, we need to go beyond reading and studying to putting into practice what the Lord teaches us. Knowing uh, you, you don't have to do it yourself. The, the Spirit will empower you. And I'll talk about what that means. But you need to start with the Word of God. You start with understanding it. And then God will give you the power to actually obey it. You don't have to do it yourself. God will move you in a lot of different ways. And we will look at that. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit tomorrow morning? Maybe that's a commercial if we're getting here at 9.30 in the morning. Um, but uh, we can do this. And, and God is going to help us. And hopefully this will motivate you. If you're maybe not the best Bible student right now, that you'll see the benefits and the blessings of it and you'll want to become one um, and grow in Christ in your walk with Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for giving us this time this evening to open up Your Word, to see the example um, that we have in Nehemiah 8. Uh, people who were hungry, they were starving actually, to hear from You. We have Your Word. We hold it in our hands. It is available to us that the people in Ezra and Nehemiah's day would never have been able to comprehend. And we don't just have those bits that they had. We have the full counsel of God. Help us to treasure it. Not just the physical copy, but the content. What comes into our head and moves to our heart and moves out of our hands and feet and our mouths. Change us, God, through Your Word. We thank You for it. We pray You would help us to love it more. To be hungry for it. To thirst for it. And Lord, I pray for those that maybe are going through a dry spell spiritually. They just haven't desired the Word the way that they have in the past. And maybe they don't know what's going on. They don't know what's wrong. We, we all seem to find those patches of dry times in our spiritual walk. I pray for those, Lord God, that maybe feel that way right now. They don't maybe feel like coming to church as often. They don't feel like opening their Bible. 
Give them that hunger and thirst again, Lord. Give them that passion they once had. Remind them of what it used to be like. And help them to turn away from those things that may be distractions in their life. Sometimes we don't want the meal of the Word, Lord, because we're consuming the junk food of the world. We're taking in all that other stuff that dulls our spiritual senses and fills us up with something that will never satisfy. They're like those cisterns hewn out by hand that will never hold water. Help us, Lord God, to hunger and thirst for the living water and the bread of life. We thank You, Lord God, for tonight. We look forward to tomorrow and look forward to beyond what You will do and the spiritual fruit that will be born out of our obedience to what we learn. It's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.